Why don't you turn to uh, Matthew chapter 26 tonight. Let me get my Bible and my water because I'm going to need that. Matthew chapter number 26. Have you enjoyed the 12 Disciples series? I feel bad because I'm finishing it, and there's something satisfying to finishing a series if you're the one who started it. So I appreciate Pastor Tyler uh, letting me finish it out. Uh, And we've talked about a lot of different guys, disciples, and so I want to recap. We've talked about... um, several of these individuals. But I want to ask you this question, and and we don't normally do this on Wednesday night, but I want to even open it up. You can respond. I want to ask you, which disciple, as we've gone through the series, which disciple do you feel like you've identified with? I don't know about you, but if someone would ask me, which disciple are you most like? Before this series, I probably wouldn't have had a good answer, but now I know. I'm very, yeah, and Pastor Tyler knows too. Uh, I think he wrote the whole message about Mike Collins. I don't think he's writing about the disciple. I think he's writing about me. But which disciple would you say, hey, if I had to choose a disciple, I identify with this disciple. Of course, we talked about, some of you are like, I don't remember all the disciples now, right? Uh, We talked about Simon Peter. We talked about Andrew, the sons of thunder, James and John. We talked about Philip, Matthew, Nathaniel. We talked about last week, the obscure disciples. Which one would you identify with the most? Don't, Don't raise your hand, just shout it out. Simon Peter, James, Miss Cammy, Obscure, okay. Who else? Brother Curtis? Philip? That's me. That's me, yep. Who else? Raise your hand. I mean, come on, y'all. Were you listening? You know? Thomas? Okay, good. Let's do two more. Two more people. Which disciple do you... Okay, Natalie's raising your hand. I'm going to leave that over there. Um... Which disciple do you identify with the most? Chris? Andrew? Good. One more. What's that? No, I'm not. I know. <laughs> Trust me. Today it's been a, 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 a knock-knock joke, so I think that might be. Gary? John. Yep. I don't know about you, but I feel like every week I've kind of identified with something about him. I mean, the first week I think we talked about Simon Peter and talked about how impulsive and just raw he was in his personality. I thought, man, that, that must be me. I found myself wanting to be like Andrew, who was the behind-the-scenes helper, right? And we, we heard that message, and that was a challenge to us. And I've often identified with the zeal and sometimes the lack of mercy of the sons of thunder, James and John. I certainly identify with the analytical and sometimes lacking in faith, Philip. Uh, Sometimes I felt like I identified with Nathaniel. I was grateful, as we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, for the mercy that Jesus showed to Matthew. And I could certainly identify that with that, couldn't you, church? And last week, uh, I certainly found myself in the picture of thinking sometimes I'm serving in obscurity. And I was so helped by the message last week. But I want to point out something. That we all identify with these disciples. But no one raised their hand saying they identify with Judas. Let's be real. You know, we all like, you know, I, oh, I'm, I'm Simon. I've got a big mouth. It's okay to identify with Simon's sin. But a lot of us don't really look at Judas and say, that's me. Is that fair? Because we look at Judas and we say, well, here's a guy who... T- had the sinless son of God in front of him, was with him for three and a half years in a very personal way. 
And we look at a guy like that and we think, there's no way that I could have possibly done what Judas did. And I, I think tonight, for people who are here on a Wednesday night, these are you're people who want to honor and reverence and fellowship with Jesus. So I, I don't think you would probably be the person who would literally betray Jesus to his killers. But let's be honest. And I think you'll agree with me by the end of the message. When you begin to study the ending of Judas's story, you'll begin to see that if you just give God an honest minute to speak to your heart, you and I probably identify with the sinful tendencies of Judas more than we think. If we just look at Matthew 26 and 27 and kind of, I'm just going to kind of survey those two chapters and see how Judas is interwoven through this story. Because to be honest, he doesn't pop up much in the biblical narrative except for a few little tiny spots. As we survey this story, what we're going to see is that in Judas Iscariot, we see what could happen in our hearts. We see this sinful tendency that honestly is in every person's heart here tonight. It manifested itself differently in Judas than maybe it might manifest itself in you. But the reality is you are just as much a sinner and just as much in need of God's marvelous grace as Judas was. I want us to look at chapter 26, and I want us to start in verse number 6 in a story that's actually not about Judas. But when Matthew, and actually the other gospel writers, write about Judas betraying Jesus, all of them seem to put this story right before the account of Judas betraying Jesus. Look at verse number 6. It says this in Matthew 26, verse number 6. Let me be on the right page here. It says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment. We know this woman to be who? Mary, right? And Mary brings this alabaster box of precious ointment to Jesus, verse number 7, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm sharing a good meal with friends, the last thing I expect is for someone to dump a bottle of oil on my head. And so as you're reading this passage, it might seem a little bit weird as an American reading what Mary's doing. It kind of just seems just weird. I don't know how else to describe it to an American person. But I want you to understand the reason Mary was anointing Jesus' head with oil was symbolic. Jesus identified uh, why Mary anointed him with oil, but it actually wasn't the same reason I think Mary anointed Jesus. There were only two reasons you anointed someone with oil typically. It was if you were crowning them to be king or if they were dead. Okay? That was most of the time that you anointed someone with oil. If you're crowning someone to be king, you're basically um, um, identifying their royalty, their power, their authority. And I think that's what Mary was doing here. She was identifying that Jesus truly was the king of the Jews, the son of God. And so she anointed his head with oil. But you'll find out later in the account that Jesus says, she actually anointed me for my burying, right? And so Jesus kind of flipped the script on her. And the, in verse number seven says that what Mary anointed Jesus with was very significant. Of course, we've heard this story a lot, but I want you to pay attention to this. It says in verse number seven that she had an alabaster box. And it says a very precious ointment. The Mike Collins translation of that phrase would be mucho dinero. Like it was very expensive. If you study out what this ointment, this perfume was, 
it would have been worth a lot of money. A lot of scholars say that probably what Mary broke open and poured on Jesus was worth a year's worth of wages. That's a lot of money. I mean, I just bought a house, and I feel broke, but I can't imagine if I just broke it and dumped it out, you know, a year's worth of wages, worth of stuff. In liberal Kansas, our median wage is $47,000, our median household income. So I want you to picture, okay, in America, what's worth $47,000? In my mind, went immediately to a brand new Tesla. That's how expensive this oil was. Okay, so picture in your mind, if you see someone driving by in a brand new Tesla, you're like, well, that person's got some money, right? That's exactly how expensive and how valuable this ointment was. But on top of that, my understanding of the text is that Mary wasn't like most people who probably own fancy cars where she had a lot of money, you know, 50 grand here, 50 grand there. It's not too much of a big deal to them. This was probably a family heirloom. This was something likely that Mary might have had that was passed down from generations. It it, it highlighted the actual casing that this oil was in. It was an alabaster box. It was very precious and very valuable, just the casing it was in. And so here's Mary... And Matthew's pointing out that when she comes to the end of Jesus' ministry, Mary not only recognizes that Jesus is her king, but that Jesus is worth her most extravagant sacrifice to honor him. Now, I've heard that message preach, and a lot of times I'm like, man, I want to be like Mary. And I want to give everything for Jesus. And the, and the idea of that section of the narrative is that Jesus is worth your most extravagant sacrifice. Isn't he, church? That there's nothing you could give up for the sake of Jesus Christ that is too extravagant. That if Jesus demands that you leave your family, which he did for his disciples, it would still not be enough. It would still not be what he deserves. If Jesus asked your family to pick up and move to another country, it still wouldn't be enough because Jesus is worth our most extravagant sacrifice. But for Mary, I want you to understand this. I want you to notice how Matthew tells the story of Mary. But then I want you to look how quickly he flows into the story of Judas. And here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to contrast the two. Here's Mary, and she gave 12 months of wages for Jesus. And then he's going to go right into the story of Judas, and I'm going to make the case that Judas is the story of a man who traded Jesus for four months of wages. Look at verse number 14. Then one of the 12... Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him. They made a a promise with him for 30 pieces of silver. Verse number 16. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. So Mary breaks open this bottle of perfume that's worth 12 months of wages. And then Judas immediately after, apparently ticked off by the fact that Jesus... Um, didn't agree with him that what Mary was doing was a complete waste of time. Look at verse number eight. It says, and when his disciples saw it, that indignation saying, to what purpose is this waste? And, And the other gospel accounts will tell you that it wasn't just any disciple leading the charge, that it was Judas Iscariot himself, who as Mary broke open that bottle of alabaster, that alabaster box with that expensive ointment, that as she did that, 
Judas didn't stand back and have respect for Mary. He wasn't taken back by her extravagant sacrifice for the Lord of Lords. No, he looked at her and said, why would you waste that on him? We could have taken that and sold it and made some money and given it to the poor. Of course, another gospel writer pointed it out that he didn't really want to give the money to the poor. He wanted the money for himself. And so apparently, when Jesus flipped the script on Judas and said, hey, what she did was for my burying, and this will be written about her for ages to come, Judas immediately left. And it says at that moment, he went to the chief priest and, and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And it says that the price they settled on was 30 pieces of silver. Now, you studied out, I mean, how much is 30 pieces of silver? There's not a lot of clarity there. But the highest estimates, I'm saying the highest estimates, say that Judas betrayed Jesus for four months of wages. Close to what you would pay for an engagement ring. Right? You know, the, the weird rule of thumb out there that I'm sure a jewelry store made up that you have to spend X amount of months on a Yeah. That's how much Judas betrayed Jesus for. Now, by you, <clears throat> there's a big difference between 12 months of wages and three or four months of wages. Four months of wages won't change your life. Let's be real. I mean, I don't know what Judas had in mind for this, but the reality is here's what I think all the gospel writers are doing is that they're contrasting. Here's a follower of Jesus and she saw Jesus as so worthy, so high, so exalted that she would give her most extravagant sacrifice, not just something that was expensive, but something that was a precious family heirloom. And then on the other side of this, you have one of the same people who's followed Jesus for three and a half years and has heard all the same things that Mary has heard probably more, has had all the exposure to Jesus that Mary has had. And what do you find? You find a man that trades Jesus for a bag of money. And I think here's our problem. We look at Judas and we say, well, I'm not like him. I would like to be more like Mary. But here's the problem. We, we, ident- we define betrayal by the wrong terms. We think betrayal is betraying Jesus to his death. But if you understand the significance of what Jesus did to cover your sins, Jesus doesn't define betrayal quite the same way. When you understand the weight of how you are bought by Jesus' blood, you might find yourself identifying with Judas just a little bit more. And here's how I would put it. That betrayal is when you place a higher value on your sin than your savior. That that's what Judas did. Because here's the truth, church. Every traitor has their price. Benedict Arnold, his price was 20,000 British pounds. Judas's price was 30 pieces of silver. But let me ask you this question tonight, church. What price does it take for you to betray Jesus? What's your price? For some of you, your price is lust. That you could be all fine and dandy honoring Jesus, but when an opportunity for lust arises, you turn your back on the Savior, you forget his atonement for your sins, and you run back to the very thing Jesus cleansed you from. For some of us, it's covetousness. Oh, we would say, you know, God has done so much for me. God has been so good to me. Until we log on to Amazon. 
until we drive by that person with the other car. And then all of a sudden, our mind is not, God has been so good to me and what God has given me is enough, but how can I possibly make more happen? Are you with me? For some of us, it's other things like anger would be our price. Hey, we want to honor Jesus, but when something gets us upset, we trade all of that to go back to our flesh. Say, yeah, Jesus may have paid for my sins, but I'm just going to hold on to this thing a little bit longer. Let me take my 30 coins and dwell on this anger for a little bit. For some of you, it's forgiveness or unforgiveness. Oh, you'll come to church? Oh, I would never lust after someone else. Oh, I'm so content with my finances. But when someone brings up someone you need to forgive, we find out who wins the bidding war between Jesus and your sin. Because you say, well, they, they did this, and they, I could never forgive them that. There's just some things you can't get over. And listen, I understand that some pains are really deep. I'm a young person. I probably haven't experienced nearly the pain some of you have. But I do know this, that when Simon Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive them? Jesus didn't just say seven times. Jesus said 70 times seven. He said unlimited forgiveness. There is no bar too high of the forgiveness you should offer someone else. And for some of us, our price for our betrayal is forgiveness. But it's easy to pick on sins of commission, right? Things we do. But let me remind you that Jesus isn't just interested in things that you shouldn't do. Jesus commands us to do some things. Jesus commands us to share the gospel. Am I right? <laughs> He commands us to share the gospel. And here's what happens sometimes. Let's be real. We get an opportunity. We have an opportunity to talk about God with somebody. And here's the, here's the bidding war that's going on in our mind. Do I want to share the gospel and honor Jesus, or do I want to stay in my comfort zone? And who wins that bidding war determines who your master is in that moment. Or, or maybe it's sometimes just showing love to a brother and sister in Christ. You know, if you're going to live out the New Testament commands of loving a brother and sister in Christ— you might be kind of busy in the church. Caring for people, bearing one another's burdens, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. And sometimes we get so caught up in our own bubble that we think church is about us and we want people to minister to us. And yet we never get out and we never minister to others. And so sometimes I think our price is, hey, I just want to stay in my comfort zone. And anytime you're pushed out of it, here's what happens. A bidding war ensues, and then the choice is made. Are you going to bid, outbid by your sin or by your Savior? And so I think more of us are like Judas than maybe we would like to imagine. Because we betray Jesus when we place a higher value on our sin than our Savior. I don't have to wonder. When Judas left that meeting, now he, I think they advanced him the money, so that's kind of that's a nice deal. They, didn't, they gave him the money, go get Jesus. And, and he goes and is seeking out to betray Jesus. I wonder what Judas was thinking, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but if you like have some planned extra income coming, you're probably thinking, okay, here's how I'm going to use that money, right? And you're kind of excited about it. And, and the text goes on to show that that as Jesus has his supper with his disciples, right, Judas sits down with them like the rest of them, and then he leaves the supper, and he goes 
and, and kind of hides out in the garden. He knows Jesus is going to be there. And then he betrays Jesus with a kiss, and the soldiers come and get him. And you would think that Judas would be happy. He was a hardened man. You would think that he'd be okay. You'd think that he would just take the money and run. But we find out in, in, in chapter number 27 how Judas actually felt after he betrayed Jesus. And I think we find some of ourselves in the text too. Because a lot of times we bite into sin thinking that it's going to ple- be pleasurable. We, we bite into sin and, and take opportunity to sin thinking it's going to make us feel better. And then we find out it's empty. We find out that all sin leaves you with is a little bit of pleasure, a little bit of fun, and a whole lot of regret. Look at chapter number 27 and verse number 2. Or let's look at verse number 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him unto Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then, verse number three, Judas, which had betrayed him, pay attention to this, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. Now, now I want to make this clear. Judas didn't repent in the biblical sense. I would say Judas had regret. And, and let me make this very clear. Regret and repentance are not the same thing. There have been a lot of people who've regretted their sin, who felt bad about their sin, but they've never let the feelings of regret and remorse turn them to Jesus and and seek after Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus' cleansing. So Judas had regret. He didn't have repentance. And I want you to notice that Judas felt regret when he saw. When he saw. When he saw the consequences of his actions. Isn't that true, church? That we don't feel a lot of regret for our sin until we see the consequences of our, re- of our actions. And sometimes that's a day later. Sometimes that's a moment later. Sometimes it's years later. But because we have such a human view of our sin, we don't even feel bad about it until the consequences start to harvest themselves. And then we see it like Judas, and then we feel some regret. Look at verse number four. Here's what he says or sorry, verse number three, he repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Now, I want you to notice this. Judas didn't, I, I, here's what I understand about this verse. I think Judas felt so bad, he wouldn't even name the name of Christ. He felt so remorseful, they wouldn't even say his name. And here's Judas, he walks in the temple and he sees the very same guys who gave him money a few days earlier. But I imagine when those guys looked at Judas, they didn't see the same Judas they saw a few days ago. I mean, I imagine Judas, when he betrayed Christ, he was a man who walked very upright, whose ego filled the room wherever he went, who never showed a hint of emotion, was hardened, was precise, manipulative, and always had his next words ready to go. But when Judas walked into the temple that day, they didn't see the same man. They saw a man who was broken down with regret. They saw a man who was humiliated by how how much he had messed up. And so Judas brings the money to these, these men, the same men who paid him the money, and he wants to give it back. And I want you to look at what they said at the end of verse number four. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. You know what they're saying? 
they're mocking him. Are you kidding me? You feel bad about this? You want us to fix your regret? Give me a break. It's not our job to fix your regret. You figure it out. That's what they told Judas. And so here's what I think we learn from verses two through five is that when you sin, when you betray Christ, here's the truth about it, that the regret of sin is never worth the pleasure it promised. The regret of sin is never worth the pleasure it promised. When you give up Christ for whatever sin seems to float your fancy at the moment, whenever you betray Christ because you don't want to forgive someone, because you want to indulge in lust or covetousness, or you want to uh, take a purchase that God doesn't want you to make because it overextends you financially, hey, it promises pleasure for a season, doesn't it? I love that about the Bible. It's honest. Oh, there's pleasure in sin for a season. But you know what's at the end of the road of pleasure and sin? Regret. Emptiness. Guilt. And sometimes if we don't seek after Jesus in our guilt, it turns into shame. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. You don't deserve God's grace. How many of you have ever felt the feelings that Judas felt when he betrayed Christ? I think sometimes when we sin, we, we fall into the trap of kind of bathing in that regret. I think one of Satan's main tactics, honestly, and I've felt it in my life a lot of times, is that one of the things Satan likes to do is he, he wants us not just to feel guilt for our sin, but he wants us to beat ourselves up over it. Over it. To really dwell in that regret. To really feel it. To feel as worthless as possible when you get at the road of your sin, because it's this sick scheme of the devil that the worse you feel about your sins, sometimes the less you turn to Christ. And church, I just want to warn you that at the end of every sin is the road of regret. Every sin. I think sometimes here's what we do. We indulge in sin we, we go after a sin, whether it's a sin of commission or omission, whether it's something we shouldn't do or something that Christ wants us to do and we don't. We go after a thing, oh, it'll be better this way. Only to find out when we see the consequences of our actions, that it's not. That there's just regret. And pain and remorse and self-pity. And that's exactly where Judas was at. We look at, I think sometimes we, have you ever found yourself doing this? You look at someone else's sin and you think, man, how on earth could they possibly indulge in that? Right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I look at some folks in, in my life, in my family, who've given themselves over to a life addiction and think, man, how on earth could they do that? Don't they see the destruction of their sin? I mean, come on, the, their life certainly is not better now than it was before. But let's not be too hard on other people's sins. I mean, I've opened an Amazon box and felt a lot of happiness that faded when I had to pay the bill. Hey, I've watched a lot of people that seek after the thrill of a relationship and everyone around them would look at, at this pursuit of this guy or this girl or whatever it may be and, and anyone with sense would look at it and be like, man, that's not wise. 
But you know what happens is in the moment, we, we, those, those folks are thinking, well, you know, it's just nice to have that attention. It's nice to have physical affection. And, and they're caught up in the pleasure of sin. But then they find out, man, at the end of that road, it so wasn't worth it. It so wasn't worth it. Man, have you, ever, have you ever said some unkind words to someone? You really want to get back at someone. And then the moment, the moment those words leave your mouth and you see how they react, you wish you could take them back. That's the regret of sin. Because here's the truth, church. The regret of sin is never worth the pleasure it promised. But here's what I find interesting about Judas. I think the last thing we learned from him. <clears throat> is that Judas traded Jesus for his sin like we do. Judas felt the regret of sin that we often feel. But I hope, church, you, you, you don't find yourself identifying with the last one. Because when Judas felt the weight of his sin, we learn a negative example. Because Judas tried to deal with his sin in a way that will never resolve your sin guilt. And we actually find that not only was Judas dealing with his guilt, I want you to look at verses 5 through um, 6. Verse 5, here's how Judas dealt with it. He cast down the pieces of silver in the temple, and he departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. Committed suicide. And so Judas' solution to his sin was, I'm going to end my life so I don't have to feel the pain and the regret of sin. But then I want you to look at verse number 6, because here are these chief priests and scribes, and they have this money that they know they shouldn't have. Like they know like this money was used to kill a guy. Like we should not be in possession of this. The temple should not be in possession of this. Isn't it funny how even like sinners sometimes have a moral compass, you know, that, that they betrayed Jesus to his death and now all of a sudden they care about what God thinks, right? Oh man, you know, we should, probably shouldn't have betrayal money in the temple. And so they take this money and they're, they're trying to figure out what should we do with this? So look at verse number six. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. Verse number seven, and they took counsel and bought with them, the, the silver pieces, the potter's field to bury strangers in. And verses eight through 10 talk about that field. Basically, here's what they do. They take the money that was used to betray Jesus and they go and they buy an empty parcel of land that they could just bury random passerby that die in their town. They think, hmm, this is a way to deal with our sin. And here's, here's what I think we see, is, is that these chief peace, priests and scribes, they try to relieve their sin by just doing some more good works. Let's just do some more good deeds. I think a lot of Christians do that. We sin. It's like, well, you know, I'll just do better. I mean, it, it would shock you how many times I'm in a counseling appointment with someone, and they're talking about their sin, and I've asked, have you ever asked Jesus for forgiveness? And it's like, what? And I wonder if maybe that's not just a representation of how a lot of Christians deal with their sin. They just try and move on. Like, let me just do something else to try and cover up my feelings about this and do some good things that'll pump up my emotions and make me feel better. So I'm dealing with the sin. And so instead of dealing with the sin and getting rid of the sin and confessing the sin, let me go serve more in church. Let me go and be good to someone else. And let me go do this good deed and, and cover up my emotions by doing more good things. But here's the problem, church. You've never gone and confessed your sin to Jesus Christ. And here's the reality. Your guilt will always break through your good deeds. There are not a 
enough good deeds on this planet to absolve your guilt for your sin. But Judas does it a different way, right? He tries to deal with his guilt with suicide, which is obviously the most extreme way of dealing with our guilt. And he tries to relieve it by just getting rid of the pain. But sometimes here's how, here's how we deal. We find some ways to numb it. Find some ways to numb it. That's how a lot of people get into different addictions, right? But here's what I want to point out to you, church. That while these two different groups of people try to deal with their sin in different ways, here's what I want you to learn from the message tonight. That only Jesus can relieve you of your regret. That, that, that I want to encourage you, don't follow Judas' path. Don't follow the path of these men and think, well, the way to deal with my sin is to make myself feel better about the few good things I can get right in my life. No, no, no. Your sin is supposed to draw you to your Savior. Your sin is supposed to draw you to your Savior. And maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit would look into some of your hearts tonight and would be identifying some things, some unconfessed sin, some sin that you haven't dealt with in your life that you've tried to cover up. You try to cover up by getting a good night's rest. You've tried to cover up by doing more good deeds. You try to cover up by medicating it, by indulging in addiction, by eating a bunch of food, by, by drinking some alcohol, by doing some things to make yourself feel better. Can I just point you to the only thing that can solve your sin, guilt, and your regret, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only one. I love what uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. I think it's on the screen. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know what's sad about this story? is that Judas went and hung himself because of the guilt of his sin that he watched his Savior die for. I want you to think about that. that. That Judas was dealing with his sin in an improper way, that just a little ways away, his Savior was paying for so that he didn't have to feel the regret and the weight of his sin. And let's not be too hard on Judas tonight because you know that there were other disciples that betrayed Jesus that night. I think Mark says it this way, they all forsook him and fled. Literally all of them, other than I guess John. But you know what we learned from the other disciples is that there was a day when they accepted and received the forgiveness of Christ. You know, you know Peter sold out Jesus too? Stand there. Warm his hands by the fire. Are you a, you a disciple of Jesus? No, I'm not. Another person comes and asks him, are you one of Jesus' followers? No, I'm not. Another one comes by, are you one of Jesus' followers? And that says he began to curse and to swear. He swore by the name of God that he was not a follower of Jesus and sold out Jesus. He was so ashamed of Jesus, he wouldn't even tell someone he was a follower of him. But I love the end of the book of John. Because here's Peter, he's out fishing. The disciples, they didn't even know what to do, right? They, all right, we'll just go back to our old occupation and just fish for a while. And then they see Jesus on the shore. And Peter swims to Jesus. 
And what do we find at the end of the book of John? There's some reconciliation between Peter and Jesus because here's what Peter understood, that yes, we sin. Yes, we betray Christ. Yes, we trade our sin or our savior for our sin. There are times like that in all of our lives, but Jesus' disciples understood that they don't have to deal with their regret themselves. They can lay their regret at the feet of Jesus Christ. That the very reason he died on the cross is so, church, you don't have to feel that regret. So you don't have to beat yourself up about your sin because the reality is, is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thank God that Jesus Christ died to purge you from those sins. And he gave you the power, his resurrection power to overcome those sins so that you don't have to beat yourself up over them anymore. So what do we learn from Judas? We learn, man, don't deal with your regret. The same way he did. Understand that only Jesus can relieve you of your regret. So here's the challenge tonight. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Miss Kay, if you wouldn't mind playing um, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. I wonder if tonight the Holy Spirit identified a specific sin in your heart where the reality is is that you've traded honoring Christ for the pleasure of sin. That there's a specific area in your life that, that God pinpointed tonight and says you need to get rid of that and confess that and forsake that. Or maybe for some of you, it's you feel like Judas, you feel overwhelmed with the regret the weight of your sin. Sometimes, church, it's even our past. We know it's under the blood, but it comes back and it comes back and it haunts us. Can I encourage you tonight, whatever it is, to understand that Jesus didn't die on a cross for you to feel continual guilt about sins he paid for. He died on a cross to cleanse you and to forgive you of your sins. And there's no place on earth you can find forgiveness for your sins other than Jesus Christ. And maybe for some of you, there's sin in your life that you haven't given over to him. You haven't confessed it to him. You haven't sought his forgiveness. Can I encourage you to do that tonight at the altar or at your seat? Man, you'd be surprised how much it ministers to your soul when you just come before your Savior and name your sin and accept the forgiveness he's already paid for. Accept the forgiveness he's already paid for. So that's the challenge tonight. Deal with your sin, but accept the free forgiveness that is purchased by your Savior. Let's stand tonight. We'll pray and give you